Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our third episode of Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. I'm Iz. And I'm Isabel, and today we're joined by Creighton. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. Thanks Thank for you for coming on. <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about bioarchaeology again. We're going to be talking about childhood bioarchaeology um, specifically. Um, so to start off, Creighton, can you tell us a little bit about what you do um, and what your work is focused on? Absolutely. Um, so I am a PhD candidate here in the anthropology department at McMaster University. Um, and my research mostly focuses on adolescence in the Roman Empire. So trying to figure out kind of when and how kids become adults and what that transition looks like both uh, physically and socially. And then outside of my core research, I'm also very lucky to be teaching, including the three of you guys, yeah. <laughs> um, this semester on a course specifically related to childhood bioarchaeology, where we get to kind of dive into that research area a bit more broadly than I get to on my own. So it's uh, been really great to kind of see it from all different perspectives. Yeah. And so um, what exactly, can you like maybe describe uh, what is childhood bioarchaeology in general and how does it fit into the framework of greater just bioarchaeology as a field? Of course. So I will preface this with saying that my interpretation or my opinion might be a little bit different than someone else's. Um, bioarchaeology of childhood has really only developed over the past 15, maybe 20 years within bioarchaeology more broadly. So it's a still um, a newly developing, uh, rapidly changing field. But essentially within that, we're looking at sub-adults or juvenile populations. So for every person, it's a bit different. It might be individuals less than 18, or it might be looking at infants or things like that. But essentially looking at individuals who are still growing and developing when they died within the archaeological record and trying to analyze them more specifically or putting more attention directly on them to learn more about the children in the past as well as the societies that they lived in and interacted with. Very cool. So you use the term sub-adult quite a lot, mm -hmm. speaking. Uh, do you want to talk about the connotations that surround that phrasing? Or I know we yeah. talked about that before. Yeah, we talked about it in our class before, a while ago now. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of different terms we use with childhood bioarchaeology. People might say a child or a sub-adult or a non-adult or juvenile. Um, and these terms all kind of have different meanings or connotations. And a lot of the problem with the definitions is they often describe a juvenile remain as but it's not so it's a non-adult or it's a sub-adult so less than being adult uh, but we also conceive of children in very different ways that biologically they are children but then socially they're all children as well um, and so I try to use the term child when talking about the very social development or the social experiences of um, individuals in the past, and then sub-adult when I'm talking about the specific biological remains, uh, not really adding any of those uh, other layers of context onto it, just the very hard, raw data. I try to use mm -hmm. sub-adult and the social, I try to use child. Yeah, and with, um, like, you mentioned social and social age, mm -hmm. so um, I understand that... Um, in some past societies and cultures, they may have constructed age a little differently than we do today. Like today we consider, oh, you turn 18, you're an adult. And we have different milestones. Like at 16, you can get your driver's license. So we have that kind of social age category. Um, can you tell us a little more about like social age versus chronological age and biological age and different age constructions? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if I can, I'll relate it specifically to my research because that's obviously mm. what I know the most about. <laughs> at least I hope so. <laughs> Um, so if we think about the Romans uh, the, uh, living about 2,000 years ago throughout uh, kind of Western Europe is where I specialize. 
And so these individuals had the biological age and the chronological age, so biological being like the physical changes of the body, whether that's getting your first teeth or going through puberty, um, whereas chronological age is kind of how many birthdays you've had, how many times you've gone around the sun. Um, and then the social age is those different behaviors and um, expectations of an individual. So uh, within the Romans, especially kind of around seven years old, they went through this social age change where they were seen kind of as miniature adults. Um, and they kind of had different expectations of them compared to someone who was three, four years old. And then studying adolescence, we're seeing a lot more of those social changes. So kind of um, as girls transition from being essentially children to wives and then mothers and then boys as they kind of add on expectations or um, responsibilities that they have to their communities and to their families as they kind of develop and grow within their society. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can that can be a little hard for us to conceptualize sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Because like seven might seem like a really arbitrary age to us, right? But to them, that was that was like a turning point or a milestone. So how how do you conceptualize reckoning, I guess, your own ideas of age and social age with studying people in the past? Yeah, it's really hard to try to like keep your biases to yourself. Um, we, tr we try as anthropologists to be unbiased in our work and it's never completely possible, but at least kind of recognizing those. So the, I brought up the, the seven-year-old example because to me, I don't really see a social age change around seven, mm -hmm. at least in our own society or in my mm -hmm. own experiences. Um, so when I'm looking at evidence of social age change in the past, I try to look for two different things. Uh, one is what people were buried with. So if we see that um, seven-year-olds all of a sudden have a lot more ceramic pots than necessarily toys, well, maybe there's kind of a social change there. Or by looking at what they've actually been eating, because food is about much more than just getting calories. It's influenced by our social position or our cultural background or a million other things. And so by looking at kind of a change in diet, I might also be able to try to find a social age change as they were eating a, a diet that's appropriate for children versus a diet that's better for adults. And um, so rather than kind of imposing my ideas about when I expect a social age change to happen, um, it's kind of about taking that step back and just looking at the data set and letting it tell you kind of where those changes were and then investigating why that might have happened or what that social age change may have looked like. And you mentioned uh, investigating diet. How would you mm -hmm. go about investigating diet? Yeah, so there's a couple really cool ways. Um, my favorite way or the way that's most applicable to my research is doing stable isotope analysis. And so this is kind of built on the framework of you are what you eat. And so if you think about um, eating foods and those foods obviously provide the energy for you to run around in the day, but it also uh, forms the building blocks of your bones and your teeth. So the foods that you eat as your bones and teeth are developing, uh, different signatures from those foods will get captured into your teeth. And so by examining those teeth, either um, by examining the entire tooth or by cutting it into different layers, I can try to look at those chemical signatures, see how they change over an individual's life. Now I can't tell if they ate like chicken ribs versus like chicken soup. Like I cannot, I wish I could get that specific, but it's not the menu. Work. Yeah, right? Just like that specific exactly quantities. No, I unfortunately not. Um, instead, we look at really broad things. Like did they eat a lot of protein or a lot of uh, plant matter or a lot of marine resources? Um, but by getting these broad pictures, we can still start to say quite a bit about dietary differences and change. Awesome. Um, so we talked, I know we talked a little bit this in class, but what are some 
um, struggles and challenges with working um, with children yeah, in the bioarchaeology rec. Like you guys obviously know, is that mm-hmm. every part of anthropology is going to have challenges and opportunities, and it's kind of about balancing those and, and, and finding that sweet spot in between. Um, unfortunately, for working with sub-adults, the biggest challenge we have is doing sex estimations, is that we can't reliably tell who was a boy or who was a girl just because they haven't gone through puberty, so their skeletons haven't physically changed to look more masculine or feminine. Um, thankfully, there's these new methods out that we can look at peptides in the dental structures so we can actually examine the teeth do some chemical analysis to try to figure it out Um, but that process is destructive and expensive so we only use it in very particular circumstances Um, so which means unfortunately that a large a large body of that research into childhood bioarchaeology just kind of lumps all the children together instead of dividing them out Um, and in my research I'm very interested in those gender experiences or how identity influences experiences so it's extra challenging to work with that Um, but I'm hopeful that over the next five ten years we can kind of get better methods to address that big gap right now. Mm -hmm. So you do say it's very challenging so then why is it so important for us to study children in the past? Oh that's a good question. There's like a million (laughs) Um, I think it's, um, well, we talked about this in the class too, (laughs) is that uh, within anthropology, we used to only really worry about the perspectives or the experiences of men living in the past. And then with the inclusion of feminist anthropology, we got the experiences of women. So we were kind of like fleshing out what that past looks like. Um, But I think right now, our, our biggest gap or what we're missing the most of is trying to get those experiences of other age groups and other age categories. And so it's kind of like this big gaping hole in our understanding. And even if we can't explore it exactly how we want to, I think it's really important to still try to keep chipping away at it in hopes that eventually we'll be able to answer some of these questions and fill in that gap. Yeah, I feel like childhood is such an integral part of everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. And it can tell a lot about how a society looks at personhood or, you know, mm-hmm. different age statuses and groups and yeah, I feel like um, we've talked a lot about like life experience too, mm-hmm. like learning about um, an in-person's, a person's entire life through their skeleton. So ignoring childhood is it's a really yeah. like big formative period of yeah. an yeah. individual's life. Like none of us would be here without our childhood. Yeah, and, and it, every, it's definitely been ignored. And everybody goes through childhood. Like yeah. it's a collective experience. So so that's really I think cool. we'd all like be interested in knowing okay we all did child like had a childhood what was different about theirs yeah so far not as many people yeah yeah. we're getting there though (laughs) one thing that I find really interesting too is that sometimes we can actually study childhood using adult remains so can you talk a little bit about that yeah for sure so I think as Isabel kind of alluded to is um like if we go back to talking about diet right where those those food chemical signatures get uh, trapped in our teeth our teeth then don't change as we get older. The exact same teeth that erupted from your mouth when you were 7, 12 years old, however old you were when you had your permanent teeth. Um, So even today, if you were to, please don't do this, but take a tooth out of my mouth (laughs) and analyze it, you'd see what I ate as a 7-year-old, not what I'm eating today. And so for individuals in the archaeological record that lived until they were 60, 70 years old, we can actually still get at pieces of their childhood by examining particular tissues or by looking at uh, specific diseases that kind of get captured in childhood and stay with that individual throughout their life. And that's really cool because when you study 
not to be gruesome, but dead children. Obviously, mm-hmm. it rec- uh, represents the most severe cases. Those are the children that died, which... So it's really interesting to look at um, people who lived through childhood because they maybe represent the majority. And so that kind of alludes to something called the mortality bias. Which, yeah, can we unpack that yeah, a little bit? Yeah, I'll let you describe oh, what that's about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the mortality bias is essentially that um, kind of raises this issue or this concern that if we are examining for the point of this conversation, uh, deceased children, are we actually learning anything about the children who lived, or are we only learning about the children who died? So if we're looking at the diet of infants and we're examining infant remains, then really we're only getting at or understanding the diet of those who passed, Mm -hmm. not those who survived. And it's very possible that they died because they had bad nutrition. And so if we look at remains of infants and then adults using this kind of longer approach to diet, um, we might even be able to see kind of differences of those who died and those who lived. Um, And somebody uh, once said it was essentially like trying to understand disease in a modern population by going to a hospital. Mm -hmm. And and saying that example. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, obviously, that's not what disease yeah it's a biased sample like. of the population yeah. it doesn't can't really tell you about yeah. everyone's experience exactly. and it's annoying because it's so true and we all acknowledge it but there's really nothing we, <laughs> we can, can do, do. Yeah. it's what you have to work with yeah yeah so it's just kind of like acknowledging that limitation right and trying to work mm-hmm. within it um, knowing that what we say might not be accurate about everyone but again we're trying <laughs> and that mm-hmm. goes along with sample size which i know we've talked about a lot yeah. is another challenge in Yeah, we hear this a lot with um, reasons as to why people don't study children or sub-adults in the past is that there's just not enough physical remains. And we've talked about this in our class that in some extent that is true, that um, there are smaller proportions of individuals who are under a certain age threshold. Um, But it's also just that we haven't been engaging with those materials very much, so we just don't know how much is out there. And so there's starting to be this kind of push that we um, more transparently declare what's in our uh, osteological collections, our skeletons, so that any traveling research would, researcher would know what they're getting at. Um, but it's not always easy. So I went to Italy as part of my field work, and they said, this collection's going to be great. There's so many sub-adults. It'll, it's perfect for you. And I was so excited. And then I got there, and it was almost all sub-adults that were oh. under the age of five. <laughs> oh, wow. And as someone who's studying adolescence, that's not really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, I think they said, oh, yeah, there's over 150. And mm. I got there and there was like six people that were Aww. in my age range. And so I was like, okay, we needed, we needed better communication on this <laughs> one. <laughs> so if sub-adults are less visible in the archaeological record, do you think that's more of a biological phenomenon or a social one? Like, why aren't we mm. seeing them? I think it's a whole mix. So there's definitely some biological things um, that the, the the actual physical bones are, are smaller and softer, so they either degrade faster or, as they're being excavated, they're just so tiny that an, an archaeologist isn't picking them up as um, as thoroughly as they might pick up an adult. But, yeah, there's also a lot of social reasons, like um, in some populations, especially like unbaptized children, they were not allowed to be buried in a churchyard. So if we're excavating a church cemetery, we're not going to find those individuals. We need to figure out those other spaces where they may have been buried and try to uh, more consciously target those for excavation. Right. That's interesting. Um, so I have a question about 
um, I know you kind of mentioned this previously, but what are s- some ways that um, bioarchaeologists are trying to overcome all these challenges? So there's lots of different ones. Um, I think one of our, our big pushes right now is to trying to incorporate more theory into what our research is, which I know a lot of people will groan at the idea <laughs> of like anthropological theory. And I definitely used to as well, but now I love theory. I could talk about that for the whole time, but I'm also your, your listeners. Um, but yeah, so I think this more like conscious effort to um, try to limit our biases and things like that. We have methodological developments like that sex estimation thing I talked about. And I really just think that the more people engage with or look at sub-adults in the past, the more we'll learn about them, including better ways to study them or, or better ways to analyze the physical remains. So we're getting there, <laughs> hopefully. And I know, um, we haven't mentioned it yet, but I know weaning is a huge part of this field. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to like, just kind of start talking yeah, about yeah, sure. that. So it's like, you guys all know this yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, but so like weaning is essentially the process from an infant being fully breastfed to being fully off breast milk. So that entire process is called weaning. And um, what's really cool is we can actually see evidence of this in the um, biological remains of subadults by looking at their teeth. And so not to get too technical, but I'll try to summarize this up quickly, is one of those chemicals we look at is nitrogen. And this tells us about trophic levels, so kind of how far up the food chain an individual is eating. And so if we think of infants, they are consuming breast milk from their mother, so they should be one trophic level above their mother's tissues. And then by the time they are fully weaned, they are no longer on breast milk, they should be around that population average. And so by looking at the teeth and cutting them into those little pieces, we can actually see that good drop from one trophic level to the other. Um, and whereas before, we just be able, were able to say, okay, weaning happened between one and four years old, we can now get really specific and say it was happening between two and two and a half years. Um, and what I'm hoping is that with these other developments, like looking at sex estimations, that maybe we can then start to ask, okay, were boys and girls weaned differently? Because right now we just have this big population idea of what it looked like. And uh, now I hope it's time to get into those nuances a bit more. Interesting. Um, and I have a question. I don't want to get too biological. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> just have a question about um, how do you age an individual? Just kind of very mm-hmm. generally, especially when looking at juveniles. Yeah. What are some ways that you can age the individual? So I will say that that is one of the strengths of looking at subadults is that their age estimations are really uh, easy, I guess, in a way, um, and can get really precise age range. So mm-hmm. for subadults, we kind of look at the biological development of that skeleton, whether it's through the growth of the actual long bones, so the arms and legs. Um, at the end of each long bone, we have these things called epiphyses, which then also fuse or connect to those uh, long bones. Um, And so we can look at the timing of that. We have a lot of studies that have analyzed known collections or x-rays of living individuals to know exactly when those kind of caps uh, attach to the rest of the bone. Um, And then my my personal favorite uh, is looking at dental development. And so the teeth, even though there's a lot of differences between boys and girls and higher and lower status groups, um, the teeth kind of develop and erupt within a very predictable pattern. And so by looking at just the teeth in a mouth, so even if we just have the lower jaw of a child, we could probably get a really specific age range of about six months, which is really exciting considering in adults we normally get age ranges of like 20 years yeah <laughs> so yeah I found that really we did that in class that was really interesting yeah doing the different yeah 
So what do you guys like? Did you like the teeth or the bones or the... I like the teeth. I think the teeth are really cool because I think it's one of the things that I find really fascinating about the dentition is that um, where other uh, different things in growth might be affected by like malnutrition Mm -hmm. or something like that, like um, teeth are relatively unaffected by environmental stressors. So I find that kind of cool how resilient teeth are. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what can it tell you about kind of going back to social age? Mm -hmm. Um, Even though the teeth tell us like this biological age, what in your research did you find like is there differences in social age? Like, what can it tell you about? Um, so I'm looking at the social age right now. I'm getting into the diet side of things. That's kind of, um, I'm stuck in the lab right, well, not right now, <laughs> but um, normally I'll be in the lab and I'm trying to look at those changes in diet to pick out uh, kind of when those changes happened for boys and girls. Um, looking at some of the ancient literature, which is one of the reasons I love studying the Romans is that I can use all of these sources that are direct from that time period. Um, and so they kind of suggest that this girls had that the girls had a, a more abrupt change and that the boys had a, a much longer kind of period of adolescence, which um, the descriptions from ancient writers are amazing. They describe it as a period of hooliganism <laughs> and debauchery uh, and all these great words, uh, but only for the boys and, and for girls. <laughs> it's like, course. oh, no, no, they were children and, and then they got married. <laughs> so part of that, right? Like, oh, <laughs> so part of that might be true that that is what their lives look like. But the other part of it is that those were written by men living in Rome. Mm-hmm. And what did they know about being a adolescent girl that's so interesting so it's like okay we'll see if this is accurate or if they were just like oh no no, we don't care about that yeah let's go back we wrote that because we actually don't care (laughs) or we just don't know we've never asked a girl hey what did it what was it like being a teenager yeah so so like obviously science is making advances we're making advances in theory and methodology um and you know fields are progressing so where do you see childhood bioarchaeology going in the next five ten years like what would you like to see oh that's challenging and i will say that um so we have class later today with the four of us together um and that's actually one of the questions that i'm asking you guys oh (laughs) so i might just throw it back at you and see what do you think what where do you think it could go i i'm really i guess i really like both methodology and theory those are two of the areas that i think are really interesting so I think continuing to develop methodology, like um, in one of the papers I read today, uh, it said um, that they're looking now at the mandible um, or the, the jaw in children to see if they can use that to sex individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so like trying new things and looking for new methodology, like that kind of thing I find really fascinating. And then like socially situating ourselves with theory, like even borrowing from like sociology mm-hmm. or different um, social theories, I think is definitely something that we can use like moving forward yeah and it's interesting you bring up this looking at the mandible or the lower jaw to try to estimate sex for sub-adults is i think one of the things that we are always worried about in research is that um we don't want to make mistakes oh yeah but i think we're so new within childhood bioarchaeology that we just have to give it a shot and if it doesn't work then great we've ruled one more thing out yeah we don't need to mm-hmm. look at that anymore we can go focus on something better yeah like i would argue that some of the best discoveries in history came through 
trying a whole bunch of things that didn't work first. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and we just publish it in a ways that are always like, I tried this and it worked. And it's like, no, that's not how it happens. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, if everything worked the first time, then research would be pretty pretty infinite. It would be, oh. And it would be tried. pretty boring. Yeah, it right? would be, right? If it's just like, okay, anything I Anything you try would be, obviously there'd be no hypothesizing or there'd be no it'd be if you were guaranteed how things work then yeah we have this phrase that uh, no results are still results yeah that even if it's not what you wanted to find there's still an interesting story to tell there a way to learn from it yeah so it's like even if I don't find differences between males and females okay what does that mean does that mean they were more equal in the past or why aren't I seeing the differences I think I wanted to see (laughs) I love like anthro sayings and analogies like that <laughs> like like uh what is it evidence or absence of evidence, evidence. is not evidence, evidence. of absence yeah. 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 all those adults. the yeah. sayings and all that i love that kind of thing <laughs> that's definitely very applicable mm-hmm. for sure yeah i feel like once we definitely i feel like an obstacle that needs to be overcome and hopefully it will in one day is the is the sexing of mm-hmm. uh, juvenile skeletons yeah. because once that can be done i feel like you open up a whole new door of breaking down what we conceive as gender stereotypes and how those have changed through time yeah. and like mm-hmm. our preconceived notions can be kind of eliminated as we examine how people have done it in the past and yeah that's i think cool. mary lewis who's kind of like the leading researcher in childhood bioarchaeology calls uh, sex estimations the holy grail of childhood <laughs> go, research yeah. is that this is what we need and so, they can do comes. do they have something to do with dna analysis to try and estimate yeah so we can use dna to look at sex it's just so expensive right. and, and is destructive, right? right? You have to actually destroy part of that individual that if we could find a way just by looking at it, it would be so much easier, easier right. more ethical, faster. Right. It would be the holy grail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'd like to very much thank Creighton Avery for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much for coming. <laughs> I think we all learned a lot, both in your class and today. And it's yes. always it's always great to have these kind of discussions, especially about things that are up and coming and that are not always changing. yeah. Not always talked about to the same extent as like adults are. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um so one thing that we do here, anthropologically speaking, every week is we have a shout out to our non-human viewer of the week because we think it's really fun that maybe some non-human listeners are listening to a show about humans. So would you like to do your our non-human listener shout out of the yeah, week? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a shout out to my puppy, Nika. I say she's a puppy, but she's like 13. She has <laughs> dementia and she's partly blind, but uh, she's still an absolute sweetheart and so shout out to nika (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for joining us this week so next week we're actually going to be having um, a bit of a departure from our guest interviews and you're just going to be hearing a lot of me is and isabel sorry in advance (laughs) Um, and we're going to have a uh an actual requested show um from one of our listeners, and we're going to be unpacking anthropology in pop culture. So, you know, Andy, Indiana Jones, you know, Temperance Brennan, <laughs> Lara Croft, you know them. Are they legit anthropologists or Spoiler, are they? No. no, they're not. They're TLDR, they're looters. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, I guess Temperance Brennan isn't as much as a looter, but she has some problems going on with some of the methods she's using. Like, I love how she can like look at a foot and be like, oh, it's a 40-year-old male. This yeah. person yeah. had a child. Yeah. yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Like, no. 
they were a construction worker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So as always, if you have any requests for shows that you'd like to hear us do, or even any topics that you'd like to hear us tackle anthropologically, please let us know on our Facebook page or email us. Um, And yeah, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time for some really fun anthro and pop culture talk. See you next week.